The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hold it. One, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome back to Short Hops and Tall Tales. I'm Noah Scott here once again with my co-host Brandon Riddle, and we are joined today by Chad Young. Chad writes Going Deep articles for Pitcher Lists, and you can also find his work at Rotographs, where he mostly covers Autonew. He also co-hosts the Keep or Cut podcast here on the PL Podcast Network, and is a regular on Autobot Pod as well. The best place to find Chad is on Twitter, at Chad Young. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. And so I just touched on it a little bit. Um, I know you do a lot of odd and new leagues and stuff. And I know Brandon is uh, a little familiar with that. Um, now, for me and for some of the people at home, can you explain exactly what odd and new fantasy is? Yeah, odd and new is a, a fantasy format that uh, has been around for about a decade now, sort of publicly. But uh, actually, when we talk about my, my story, the reason I'm here, there's some background that ties into this. Uh, the, the guy who is sort of the, the man behind Adonu, a guy named Niv Shah, is one of my good friends from high school. And he and I and another friend of ours from high school about 15, almost 20 years ago now, just sort of looked at the fantasy landscape and said, none of this is what a real GM does. Let's try to figure out what we could do that would be more like a real GM. And that's sort of what Adonu goes after. It's a, they're 40-man rosters. You have a $400 cap. Your players, you can keep everyone on your roster as long as you can afford their salaries when their salaries go up every year. Uh, there's an arbitration process to make sure that underpaid players get paid a little bit more. And so it's really meant to sort of go after that that real GM experience of what's it like to manage a full 40-man roster where you've got your day-to-day, but you're also thinking about the future, you're thinking about long-term it's it's a little bit more intense than your average keeper league where you might you know keep three or four guys. It's not dynasty because you do have to deal with these budget considerations and things like that in ways that most dynasty leagues don't. And, and it's really I've been playing it now, like I said, for you know almost twenty years now, and it's it's great. It's super fun. If you haven't tried it out, it's a great great time. Yeah, it's just a whole different way of thinking about fantasy baseball. So it's it's a great addition to it. Otherwise, what could be a perfect game with fantasy baseball already, but adding in these different dynamics, it's a lot of fun. That sounds really cool. And it's also really, really cool to like hear that you're kind of in on like the ground floor for Autonew as well. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, how long's your like longest tenured Autonew league been? 
So the, when we first started it, so if you, like I said, you know, Niv and our friend Jeff and I, it was probably 2005-ish. I, I wish I could remember exactly when, but it was somewhere around there that we decided we're going to put together a league that's not going to be like anything else. There was no platform that could support it. And we actually, the first year, we couldn't even find 12 people who wanted to do it. There were nine of us. And one of the guys dropped out in the middle of the auction. <laughs> so no. it, was a little, uh, it, it was a little bit of a choppy start, but that league is still going. And, and the other, I think of the other eight, the eight of us who, who really made it through that first year, I think seven of us are still playing in it. Um, and we've, we're now at a full-size 12-team league. And we've had no turnover for i would say at least 7 8 years and and maybe only one or two teams of turnover wow. in the entire 15 year 16 year run of it so it's been that, that is that's the absolute dream to have seven yeah. people in one league for that duration of time i'm lucky to get like five people year to year but seven for that long that's yeah. incredible yeah. it's cool i mean it's it's basically our home league right so it's it started three three of us from who went to high school together two of us also went to college together and so between us it's our college friends and the nivs college friends who sort of formed the core of that league when it started and it's branched out a little bit since then one of my best friends from my, my days in chicago is in the league now um some one of the guys that niv is friends with from college some of his law school friends joined, but it's basically a home league, right? And you think about those home leagues that last forever because everybody actually knows each other in real life. That's that's a basically what we've got here. It just happens to be our auto new league. That's nice. those are the best too, because then you get the the years of of the building history, um, and you can. I'm sure you've gone through you know periods of rebuilding, and then you know in win now mode, just you know just like real life. That's that's really cool, uh, Brandon. I'm, I'm just out of my curiosity. Uh, what's your longest tenured fantasy league experience? Been? Oh goodness. Um. So I, I always try to get a you know, a league going with the same core group of people. Uh, the issue for our league has been finding the others to join and stay year to year and they'll drop out halfway through an auction, for example, or halfway through the season when they decide they don't care anymore to stop updating the roster. Like, hey, man, half your team's in the deal. You want to maybe? No? Okay. Um, so right now we're going in year three of my mutilation of the um, – Oh, no, no, league. <laughs> um, so it's kind of similar. We have tiers of contracts um, in different duration of, you know, contract years. And each year they go up and you can extend them for an extra like $5 or something. And then our budgets are also uh, tied to the MLB average uh, contra- um, sorry, um, budgets. So every year the MLB budget changes, our budget changes. But this year... Um, it's going to stay the same or go down. So we're going to have to do some dancing. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I think my longest league experience is right now we're running on four years. And it's the same story where you've got the same core group of like, you know, seven to nine people that are in it year to yeah. year. And then you're trying to fill out the last couple slots. Uh, but that's, that's really interesting. Um, I personally didn't really know all that much about auto new. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Uh, now pivoting a little bit, Chad, uh, I remember when we first talked about having you on the podcast, you told me that you had a story about giving away tickets to a perfect game, not once, but twice. How does that happen? So I, I mentioned before, there's a little bit of a tie into auto new here. So the, the history of this is when I moved to Seattle, I moved to Seattle about a decade ago. And when I moved out here, I really didn't know anybody. And the one of the few people I knew 
was one of the guys in that original auto new league who I've been playing with for years happened to move to Seattle about a month before me. We had never met in person. We have Niv who runs auto new was our mutual friend. This guy went to college with him. I went to high school with him. All we knew about each other was baseball. And so we were like, all right, we should hang out. Let's get Mariners tickets. And so one of the first things we did was we bought a, a, you know, 20 game package or something like that for the Mariners. A few months later, baseball season's actually kicking off. And Niv, who was our one mutual friend, is like, you guys both live in Seattle. I can come out and work from anywhere because I'm running this fantasy baseball thing. So he came out to Seattle for a week and he chose to time it with uh, Cleveland coming to town. So Niv and I grew up in Cleveland. So he came out here and they were here. It was it was mid-April. So I'm looking at I'm actually looking at baseball reference right now to make sure I got the right dates. <laughs> they were here Tuesday through Thursday, the 17th, 18th, 19th of April. And we happened to have tickets for the Saturday afternoon game against the White Sox as well. We went to the games. White Sox are in town. The Mariners aren't that good. The White Sox aren't that good. We've just been to a bunch of games. We've got other stuff we want to do in Seattle. And you've got Blake Beaven pitching for the Mariners and Phil Humber pitching for the White Sox. And it never crosses your mind that Phil Humber might throw a perfect game. You're, you're thinking like, <laughs> it's like, oh, we got two two not very good pitchers and from two not very good teams. Forget <laughs> it. And we gave away the tickets uh, just to do something different. Cause it was like Niv's here. We should go out and enjoy the city. And so, so, so yeah. And then Humber goes and does it. Baseball brought you both together. And then your response is to not go see the baseball game when you're both in town. We, we had just gone to, I think we went to all three of the Cleveland okay. games. So we had gone three straight days yeah. and then okay. the baseball gods just decided to smite you. Yeah, it was, uh, and we deserved it. I mean, we just gave, gave away the ticket. So wow. wow. That's just how it works out sometimes. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, then later that same season, uh, there was a Wednesday afternoon game that, again, John and I had tickets for. We both worked. It was like a 1230 start. We we're like, forget it. Afternoon start. We'll give them away. Uh, we actually found someone who was in Seattle, who had grown up in Seattle, who was a huge Mariners fan. It was Felix Day. And he was like, this guy was just so excited to get to go see Felix pitch. And it was it was Felix's perfect game. Okay. And well. so... At least, at least you know the Mariners fan got to got to appreciate it. But who throws a perfect game at, on a Wednesday at noon? That, I know who does that. I that's know. Mariner, that's such a, such a Mariner thing to do. It, it is a Mariner thing to do. That's right. They they get two perfect games in that stadium in the same season, and one of them is <laughs> Phil Humber, and the other is on a Wednesday afternoon when nobody's at the game. It's like, man, that's wild. <laughs> um, kind of similar along those lines. So obviously, that's that's a bit of a heartbreaking story. What's the coolest thing that you've actually actually seen at a game in person the coolest thing i've seen at a game uh i've seen some really cool stuff over the years um my my freshman year of college i was i was a broadcast journalism major and i did an internship that following summer with the abc affiliate in cleveland working with the sports producer and they used to do someone had to go down to uh jacobs field at the time it was still jacobs field to do post-game interviews and Every once in a while, if it was a bad game and nobody from the sports department wanted to go, they would send me. And so they sent me down one day. Uh, we were playing Seattle, and they were trailing 12 nothing. And they sent me down there, and it got back to 12-2. to And then it went to 14-2. to 
and Cleveland came back and won that game 15-14. And it's the largest comeback in Major League history. Uh, and I got down there around... I got down there during the seventh inning stretch. I left the studio and got down to the stadium. And they put up, I can't remember if it was like five, it was either five in the seventh, four in the eighth, and three in the ninth to tie it, or it was three, four, and five. It was one of those two. Uh, but got there in time to see that. They ended up winning it in extra innings. I ended up not getting to do the post-game interviews because the anchor decided, in fact, this is one I want to do. <laughs> so he showed up a little bit later. But I watched that comeback from the press box, which was wow. just awesome super super cool and it's, the, the press go ahead i would say it's the only time i've been in a I've, so i've been in press boxes before it's the only time i've been in a press box where people just sort of gave up the pretense of being in the press box it was like i don't like even the mariners co- coverage people were like this is just so cool that this is happening uh it, it was crazy <laughs> it was crazy yeah and for those you listening at home the press box is just like it feels like the sacred ground. You don't cheer. You don't really show your bias when you're watching the game. It's just a place of business. And so when you cheer, it's a big deal. I remember the first time I was in the press box was for a college football game. And I was going by myself. I didn't have somebody to tell me these unwritten rules. And so I see a big play. and I just kind of stand up in excitement and look around and then quickly sit back down. And I was showing my spot. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah so we have a big moment, a historic moment like that, and and everyone in the press box shows their emotion. It's it's incredible. Yeah, it was super cool. It was it was one of the more fun things. And even though I didn't get to do those post game interviews, I was actually then down in the clubhouse after the just sort of hanging behind the anchor while he did the interviews. And the team was just like they were they were almost like shell shocked, like they couldn't believe this had just happened. There was like this combination of like giddiness and just confusion going on, and it was just a cool scene. It was fun to be part of. That's cool. That's awesome. What about, what about you, Noah? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll go. Sure, <laughs> go for it. Um, yeah. So, I remember watching Randy Johnson face off against Barry Bonds. And this is when I was kind of really figuring out how statistics and numbers work. This is, would have been like 2000, 2001 timeframe, um, maybe 2002. And I was watching Randy's ERA go down every time a batter struck out, a grounded out. And then I was watching a hitter thinking, how unfair is it that the pitcher's ERA goes down so small and the batter's average jumps up after a big event? Uh, so here we are with Randy Johnson facing Barry Bonds at Chase Field, or Bob at the time. And I, I don't exactly remember the details, but Barry Bonds goes yak off Johnson, which in itself is kind of really cool to see two of best of all time go at it. And I just saw his average jump way up. And they go, hey, yo, and Johnson's ERA went up too. What, what's all this then? And that's when I discovered that fantasy baseball would not be for me. And here I am. <laughs> that's what I've been saying this whole time. The league is biased against pitching this whole time facts <laughs> raise the mound back up to the proper height exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, it does feel like pitchers do an awful lot of work to drop that era just a little just tiny a bit microscopic and bit. then you make one bad pitch and it's like boom Especially straight up if you're a reliever you know you could have you know one bad one bad know, game bad outing you know you give up four runs in an uh, inning or something and suddenly you have a four era especially, you know, that you're working especially on last season, season. Oh, brutal last season, especially. The the worst are the cases where you've got like a a loogie, which I guess doesn't exist anymore now that we've got the three batter rule. But you'd have a loogie, you'd come out, like they'd walk a guy. The next guy would be the opposite hand and they'd intentionally walk them because they were trying to set up the next pitcher for something. And then the next pitcher comes in and gives up a hit. And all of a sudden this guy's given up, you know, a couple runs. 
<laughs> having basically done nothing. And it's like, yeah. oh man, ERA yeah. 18. No, ERA infinite at that point. You haven't even gotten it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You didn't let anybody score. It wasn't your fault. Yeah. For those of you that uh, don't know what a loogie is at home, that is an acronym for lefty one out guy. Uh, that used to be a thing up until this past season when they instituted the three batter minimum where you would have a specialist that would come on to uh, throw to one specific hitter uh, to get an out. And basically it was a strategy thing, bullpenning the rest of the game to, to get outs. Um, I think my favorite, you, you know, I don't think. I don't think I ever knew what the loogie actually stood for. Obviously, I knew what it was, but I've never heard it spelled out before. <laughs> yeah, baseball has a ton That's of those, those really wild acronyms, especially fantasy baseball, too. I feel like we just yeah. make them up for fun at that point. I think my favorite thing experience, I guess, that I witnessed in person was I remember I went to see Robert Gazelman. Uh, he's a reliever for the Mets. Uh, he's from where I live in L.A. in Westchester, and he was starting at Dodger Stadium, I believe, as a rookie. First start, you know, back home at Dodger Stadium. And so my friends who, you know, he went to high school years ahead of us, we went to to the game to go check him out. And we went to go support him. And I remember watching him and you hear him, you know, the commentators are making this big deal about how he's a local kid. And then he just gets absolutely demolished by the Dodgers lineup that day. We're sitting there, we're we're having a good time, we're all excited to go support him. And then Corey Seager almost hits for the home run cycle off of the Mets that day. And this is off the top of my head, I think he went solo shot, two run, and then a grand slam. And then I think his three run home run that he got his, you know, he was coming up the fourth time, it died at the warning track in like the eighth inning. And I thought I was going to see, because it's never happened before. And so I thought I was that that was going to be the one thing that I, you know, that was going to be in attendance for. But uh, yeah, that's why it's hard to do, I guess. That would have been incredible. But regardless, still, still a really entertaining afternoon at the ballpark, that's for sure. So uh, with that, um, Chad, I also think it's a, becoming a bit of a tradition on our show for our guests to bring with them a trivia question. And you said you had one for us. I'm a uh, little nervous. Just what embarrass you, us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Expose us. What do you got? It, it's sort of a random one, but... Uh... It's one, it's, you know, you talk about like the coolest things you've experienced watching a game. And this is one, I wasn't in the stadium for this, but I remember listening to this on the radio, which is maybe a little bit of a a clue now that you know what team I grew up cheering for. Um, Who is the first player in Major League history to hit home runs from both sides of the plate in the same inning? Same inning. Same inning. Oh, man. I know when you say it, I go, of course. I, um, I don't think you will, to be honest. <laughs> oh, really? No, I mean, it's the, so there have been three players who have done it. Okay. And Tony the Clark's two, one of them. <laughs> who, who is? Tony Clark got one of them. Did he really? Did Tony Clark do that? Oh, no, sorry. That's in the same game. Same Not game. Same it's a bu- there's been a bunch who have done it in the, in the yeah. same game. The same inning. Kendry's Morales did it um, maybe eight, ten wow. years ago. A few years before that, maybe even a good decade before that, uh, Mark Bellhorn did it. And the the first time it happened, though, was even earlier than that. It was it, it actually when it happened. So I'll give you my, my first clue is that it was something I was listening to as a Cleveland fan growing up. The second clue I'll give you is it was 1993. And I remember when it happened thinking they've been playing Major League Baseball for so long. And it's not like switch hitting is some new thing. So how is this the first time someone's done this in the same inning? And it's like it's nineteen ninety three. It's like you don't get a lot of baseball firsts that late in yeah. in history. Oh man, 
So so okay, I might have had a shot if if it was just if I was just thinking straight up. Okay, ninety switch hitters. You know, you've got a pretty good selection then. But I honestly right. don't know if I can off of the top of my head think of who was switch hitting in Cleveland. And you said like nineteen, especially Cleveland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the the this is a guy. He was on those really good, or at least the early those really good nineties teams. So he was he was there in ninety three. But when they got good, when they went to the World Series in ninety five, he was still a part of those teams. So uh, it's, I, yeah, as soon as you I, say ninety three for Cleveland, <laughs> nobody. Yeah. Well, the 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 answer. You ready? You ready to hear it? I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm I'm giving up. <laughs> Car- Carlos Baerga. Carlos Baerga, the Shefflin pony. Oh my god. <laughs> so, That's what we call him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He uh he in in ninety three. Off of two guys with the same first name, Steve Howe and Steve Farr were relievers for the wow. Yankees. Wow! And yeah, it took them took them both deep. And I was, I mean, I was eleven. I was sitting there listening on the radio. Probably I was probably supposed to be in, asleep at the time. So hopefully my parents yeah. don't listen to this and get mad at me or something Busted. retroactively. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just remember hearing it, and they were like, "That's never happened before." And I was like, "How? How has that never happened? That's the craziest right. thing." Uh-huh. Uh huh. It and like and something that Mickey Mantle should have done at some point, right? Totally, yeah, that's right? what I was thinking. Yeah, and that, that's but the thing Carlos is like Baerga. Yeah, Carlos Baerga, and he that's was a, you know name. he had a few years there where he was just an uh, an all star, a really great player. Oh, he he is, tore it up. Mm-hmm. He was my uh, one of my two favorites from those sort of mid nineties teams, um, and so I was like, I was so excited when he did that. So that that was my. Little little tying <laughs> together those exciting events and trivia all in one. That is neat. Well, when I, yeah. When I think of those those mid ninety Cleveland teams, and we it's funny we actually talked about this uh, with Daniel Port uh, a couple weeks ago. I definitely think of okay, you've got um, Kenny Lofton, right? You know, you think of Manny, right? Sure. Um, you know, Jim Tomei. I, I yeah, I think Car- Carlos Baerga was not coming up for me in my brain there, but that's really interesting. That's a good. It's a fun one. Uh, moving forward, we are now going to go into a new segment that we're debuting this episode called We've Got Beef. And as you can assume, well, it's about it's about baseball beef. And tonight we're talking about Mike Piazza versus Roger Clemens. Do either of you remember this one a little bit? Oh, for oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> the, the, the bat throwing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, we'll... and just the angry looks on their faces. Oh, man. <laughs> and those were two guys who just like... I remember thinking nobody wants to get in between them. Like nobody's no, like big. those are big dudes who did not look like they wanted to be messed with. And it's just one of those things. It's like, I think if they decide to just go at it, the rest of the teams are going to be like, have fun. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Let us know when you're done. Well, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, I, I know you talked about Barry Bonds and Randy Johnson, not really included in this, but you know, just at that era, you know, the steroid era, just massive hulking guys. I mean, even today we've got, you know, athletes are so big nowadays, um, but you know, Mike Piazza and Roger Clemens, that's, it's an amazing. Oh, they just object. ate the Wheaties. Yeah. That's all they did. They ate good breakfast breakfasts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Balanced breakfast. They drank their milk. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, had the extra biscuits to go over the wall. Absolutely. <laughs> of course. Um, so this beef, uh, between Mike Piazza, of course, uh, the catcher from the New York Mets, um, and then Roger Clemens, who was on the, in the tail end of his career at the time, pitching for the Yankees, uh, it began <laughs> June n- June 9th of 2000 with a grand slam. Um, that's kind of how most baseball beefs 
really occurs. Somebody hits a home run and then somebody gets a little salty about it. So a little bit of context. So at the time, the Yankees are in first place in the AL East and they've got a half game lead over the Red Sox. Uh, Meanwhile, the Mets, uh, they're four and a half games back of Atlanta in second place uh, in the National League. So Piazza, he's in the middle of a great season. He's hitting, you know, 360, 15 home runs. Uh, Clemens, meanwhile, not doing as well, although at the time still very serviceable. He had a 418 ERA, he's four and five. Uh, the hitters are hitting 251 against him. Um, now, at this to this point in their careers, Piazza had been hitting pretty well off of off of the rocket, um, and he actually finished his career hitting 364. So, you know, obviously Clemens probably isn't his favorite, or actually he's definitely Piazza's favorite. I'm saying Piazza's not Clemens' favorite guy to to face up against. Uh, 364 career off Clemens. Off of that's Roger insane. Clemens, that's ridiculous. But that's you know Mike Piazza was a Hall of Famer for a reason, right? Um, but yeah, so anyway, grand slam, right? So the game begins unremarkably Piazza get, you know, he strikes out against Clemens in the first inning. So then we move to the top of the third and it's zero, zero Piazza steps up with the bases loaded and nobody out following an error in two walks. So, you know, those aren't really satisfying runners to get on base if you're a pitcher. So he's a little bothered at this point. So Piazza immediately pretty much crushes a one Oh pitch dead center, gives the Mets a four zero lead. Um, now, he also historically had killed the Yankees in his career. He had hit three home runs in the nine games against them You know, prior to this. Uh, from there, Mets piled on. They ended up winning 12-2, to something ridiculous. Piazza got another hit off of Clements in the game, who actually left the game with like eight earned runs and five innings pitched. So absolutely not a great day at the office for Roger Clemens um, at this time. So fast forward, now we're July 8th, 2000, about a month later, right? So now Piazza steps in against Clemens again. And what happens? Clemens nails him in the head with a, a fastball up and in. Now, that's obviously not cool. <laughs> it, it definitely, I think, no. happened a lot more back and, then and, than today. But. And the Clemens fastball isn't exactly a nice knuckleball. Uh, these things are coming in 97, 98 miles an hour. They are death missiles. Oh, yeah. yeah and, and so Cle- to go for the Clemens, head like that. Clemens also isn't a guy who was, you know, known for being wild or anything. Yeah. Right? This isn't a guy like mm-hmm. you have some of those guys like we talked a little bit about Randy Johnson before. And there was oh, like Randy Johnson. You were always concerned. Where's the ball going? Uh, there was that great moment in the All-Star game where yep. was it John Cruck put his helmet yeah, on backwards Cruck, yeah. and, and turned around because he was like, I'm not standing in on this side of the plate. After that ball that wasn't head, Clemens. Yeah. Clemens. Clemens put the ball where he wanted it. So yeah. if yeah. I'm Piazza and that where, where it goes is my helmet, <laughs> I'm assuming some bad stuff. Right. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's, it's very clearly a sign. Um, and, and what's worse is, you know, Piazza, you know, he gets a concussion from this because he just got nailed with like a 98 mile an hour fastball. He had to miss <sighs> the 2000 all-star game. And then he's quoted. He's like, you know, basically echoing what you said, Chad, he said, I don't want to say he intentionally hit me in the head, but he definitely intentionally threw at my head. And he basically says like, yeah, but I'm flattered because he feels the only way to get me out is to hurt me. So a little bit of posturing there. And then this is actually what I found was really interesting. So in Mike Piazza's autobiography that he released a couple of years ago, I guess he reveals that Clemens actually called the clubhouse, uh, the Mets clubhouse to apologize to Piazza after hitting me in the head. And I'm going to clean it up here a little bit, but uh, Piazza basically told him to go F himself. Like, I mean, I feel similarly. You obviously just nailed me in the back of my head with, you know, a heater. I got to miss the all-star game. Come on. Yeah, that's uh that reminds me. It's like uh, when, when Giancarlo Stanton got hit in the face by Mike Fears, Mike Fears oh, was God. trying to like apologize for it. And Stanton was like not having it. 
And I don't think Fears was trying to injure him or anything. And he was trying to be apologetic. Like in the moment, he was clearly broken up about it. And Stanton was just like, nope, not not letting you get away with that. And that's not somebody who you want to make angry either. (laughs) Just a mountain of a human. I remember when the Marlins came to Dodger Stadium, I want to say 2016, 2017, around that that time. Ross Stripling threw it, John Carlos Stanton, and like Ross Stripling is, you know, he's a pitcher, but he's not a massive guy. It's definitely not large. Nobody's large enough to stand toe to toe with Stanton and and Stanton, you know, they did the whole posturing thing where the dugouts clear and they all hug each other for a while. And like Ross Stripling was right in Stanton's face. I was like, wow, you know, I kind of have a new respect for you for <laughs> obviously not for throwing at him, but like, you know. He's so massive compared to, to Stripling. Yeah, holding your ground against Stanton is no joke. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, so that was the end of the beef, right? They got of hit course, in the head. Go after yourself, and that was it, right? Yeah. That that was it. Uh, flash forward to World Series Game Two. So this oh. is actually really cool. So the Yankees and the Mets actually met again in the World Series. It was the first Subway Series since 1956 between the Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the first World Series between the Mets and the Yankees. So that's really cool. I think I would love to see that happen again someday because these teams are so exciting right now. So anyway, World Series game two, top of the first inning, Mike Piazza gets sawed off on a one, two fastball high and tight. And he, you know, his bat splinters and a shard of his broken bat uh, kind of lands near the mound. You know, it's a foul ball. Piazza's kind of trotting down the first baseline and Clemens sees this bat and picks it up and just chucks it at him and just barely misses him. You know, luckily Piazza's watching Clemens this whole time and it, you know, kind of skirts, you know, right in front of him as he's walking down the line. Now, Clemens said that there's no intent here <laughs> and that he thought that the broken bat was the ball. And so say I thought he had claimed that he thought it was the ball, that he thought he was fielding <sighs> it, which... How do we feel okay, about guy. that? Where where do we stand on this? Do we believe him? You, you spent your entire life gripping one particular size object in this particular shape for 30 plus years, 37 years at this point in Clemens' life. And all of a sudden now in the biggest stage of his life, what's this? Feels like a ball. Let's throw it. <laughs> I feel like I, I think I think the biggest question though is not like like let's give him the benefit of the doubt, right? A lot okay. of intensity, big moment, something comes towards him. Usually what comes towards him is the ball. He picks this thing up. Why did he throw it at the hitter? I when have you ever <laughs> seen a pitcher feel the comebacker and be like, I'm gonna chuck this at the runner? <laughs> like maybe maybe I can knock him down. If he had Some if he had picked solid... up and thrown it to the first baseman, like yeah. that would have been super oh, the, weird. Yeah. But at least then it would have been like, yes, that's what you do with the ball. But that's, that's a great point because there's no there's no instance at all where you would want to hit the runner with the baseball anyway. No, it makes no sense. Yeah, and it, it's is, like this is already after he said like there is no intention. I didn't mean to hit you in the head with the ball, right? So it's it's already his second excuse here. He's like, yeah, I thought it was a baseball. Like, dude, you just picked up. A I didn't mean to do it. Yeah. Like how? <laughs> and I think it was yeah. one of those things where he did it because he he definitely knew he was you know it was the bat in the moment, and then immediately I think he realized how bad it looked because you can see when I was you know looking back on this, I pulled up the YouTube video and you see his mouth. He says like I thought it was the ball. I think that was his immediate like. Oh, that looked really bad. I need to. I need to get out of this somehow, right? Like, like I don't need to get in this big fight right now in the World Series. Yeah, at least say something like, "Oh, I was trying to get it off the field. I didn't mean to throw it yeah. at him." Like, right? Come up with something that's at least plausible yeah. by the time you get back to the clubhouse after the game. But I thought I was picking up the ball and throwing it at the guy who was running to first. 
doesn't really work for me. <laughs> it's it's not great. It's not great. You know, let's let's be honest. Clemens not the best liar in baseball history, but uh, yeah. And so the bench is clear here. Um, Piazza, when they actually get everything under control, weekly bounces out to second base. So after the game, Piazza says like, yeah, you know, it was complicated and people are, this is in his uh, autobiography. He's recalling, he's like, you know, I was thinking about fighting Clemens. Right. But then I realized, you know, he's a big guy and I stood a pretty fair chance of getting my butt kicked in front of Yankee stadium in the world. So like that was a, a legitimate concern, which I think is really hilarious because like it's the world series. Right. And you've had, the, you know, that Clemens has a problem with you. And I think it's kind of funny for him to, you know, in the moment, get, be all like amped up to fight him. And then like to get this, this, you know, he's saying like, yeah, you know, I was actually I was thinking about it. And I was maybe not the best idea. Right. And I thought of Jesse Ventura and Nolan Ryan and thought, no. Yeah. No, I'd rather not. Yeah. You could almost imagine him seeing, like you were saying, you could see Clemens mouthing. I thought as well, you could almost see Piazza seeing Clemens mouth that and thinking, <laughs> you know what? He get, he gets that this was stupid. I understand that this is stupid. Let's just let it go. We'll all be better off. Yeah. I was just thinking throughout this whole beef, like Piazza didn't actually do anything except exactly. to hit the ball. <laughs> he told him to go F himself, but he just got hit in the head with a fastball. Hey, you're allowed to be mad at that point. Yeah. So Piazza's just playing baseball and Clemens just doesn't like it. Well, and what I think is hilarious is he goes on, Piazza goes on and he says, you know, he's kicking himself in hindsight. And he's like, yeah, it was not only possible, but you know, circumstances. It was in order. I should have. I should have gone after Clemens. You know, I should have gone and fight him. It was the story of the series, right? Like I couldn't deliver a punch. It's like, yeah, of course. In hindsight, you you come up with the the witty comeback when you're in the shower or whatever. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. I would I would have beat him up, but I thought at the time, like, come on. <laughs> and c- could you imagine the choice that the, Bud Selig at the time would have had to make, whether or not you suspend Piazza and, and Clemens? Like, what would you do if they fight? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That'd be an interesting conundrum. Yeah, there has to be. A, have there been any fights in the World Series games? Um, I don't know actually. I remember recently Juan Soto and Alex Bregman got into a bat flipping war. Uh, it's it, uh, which it was the best happened. I'm I'm sure off the top of my head, I can't think of anything though. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that sounds like research to me. Yeah. Coming up. <laughs> um. Yeah, but anyway, uh, Yankees ended up going on to win the series four to one, and so this is the best part of this, right? So, so he's Piazza's doing this autobiography, and he actually admits to taking karate lessons in preparation for their eventual brawl. So, in his book, he lays out a whole strategy, <laughs> and this is this is word for it. He says, "I would approach with my fist my fist pulled back. I figured he'd throw his glove out for protection, and then I'd parry the glove and then get after it." Which is like, you okay, so you take karate to have this big fight in the World Series, and then he's got this really, excuse me, but just really dorky, like, blow-for-blow blow idea, you know, strategy about how he's going to take down Roger Clemens. And then it just, it's so funny in the context of he did, you know, neither of them actually fought each other, right? Like, it was all this this posturing. I like to think uh, Piazza taking karate lessons, uh, like Kramer and Seinfeld taking karate against the kids. Because Piazza's not a small guy either, and they never actually fought, yeah. Yeah, um, and then of course Clemens is like, said something a couple of years ago, he's like, yeah, you know, if Mike wanted to fight me, he'd have to get in line. But I reiterate, they're all just, you know, talking. <laughs> like they, no, Nobody actually fought each other. Yeah, so that, that closes the book for now, possibly. I don't know, maybe 
you know, at age like 50 and 60, they'll meet up at an old timers game or something and get into it. That might be interesting. Uh, but <laughs> with that, we're going to go into a pickoff trivia round that is catcher themed. Brandon, take it away. Yeah. So quick trivia round here. Um, so catchers in general are just crazy people. Um, you know, they get. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you stand, you, you sit behind the plate. Put on some thin chest guard and let people throw at you 100 miles an hour yeah. all day. It's fair. Throw some milk. Throw some milk cartons on the knees. That way, you know, you don't get hit too hard. But no, they're just like absolute daredevils, essentially. Um, in fact, George Ellard, who was the catcher in like 1869, uh, Cincinnati Red Stockings, which was the first professional team, um, he had a little poem he wrote about the catchers. Uh, we used no mattresses on their hands, so they didn't have gloves at the time either. No cages on their, upon their face. We stood right up and caught the ball with courage and with grace. So these guys were proud of the fact they're just getting beaned with foul tips and fastballs it's all day. It's <laughs> also a very, like, back in my day kind of, you know. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We but back talking. in my day when catchers actually played every yeah. single game and caught with their bare hands and, yeah. I don't know, worked the coal mines at night. Whatever. Um, so the question here is, uh, which crazy person, which catcher has the most games as a catcher? Ooh. All time. All time. Most games as a catcher? As a catcher, not just played any position, but specifically as a catcher. Someone who played a long time uh, as the backstop. I have, and it's not like some obscure name. I have a couple ideas. It's not. There's some names that come to mind. Okay, it's not obscure. Not obscure. Chad, what are you thinking? The first thing that comes to mind for me is Fisk. Yep, I think it's Carlton Fisk, right? Fisk is number two. In fact, he's about two hundred games behind number one. Man, 200 thought, games. A little, little less than 200. That little, was my pick for like 180. Um, I I know. Okay, so I think he has, as a hint, he has an incredibly famous pose with a baseball. I mean, you could say that about when, when he got a tag out. When he got a tag out. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I it's got to be Yogi, right? Or wait, no, because he Not came. Yogi. He, yeah, because Fist came after Yogi. Um, Not Yogi. Where is Yogi at? Yogi's not even in the top 17. He's got a famous pose. At least when I, when I think of it, he has like a really intense pose after getting a tag out. Um, okay. um, def, definitely within our lifetimes, uh, 90s, 2000s. Okay. Is it Pudge? It's, Pudge Rodriguez was the other name. Yeah. Pudge. It's Pudge. Yep. Pudge. Cool. 2,427. Two, two guys with the same nickname. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the, the top five rounds out Pudge, Fisk, Bob Boone. I'm thinking, okay, uh, I have Gary, one more. Uh, is Rick Farrell on that list? Rick Farrell is not in the top. Oh, he's in number 14. Number four. Oh, wow. Because I, I do 14. remember Rick Farrell was the leader in the American League when uh, Carlton and, Fisk broke mm-hmm. his record. And as of right now, uh, number five, who Yadi will pass this season, uh, came out of nowhere. Uh, I never would have thought of it. Jason Kendall. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Longtime he, pirate. <laughs> yeah. He had a reputation for being really good defensively, too. So he probably mm-hmm. just sort of his bat fell just apart so, in a hurry. But when it fell apart, yeah. people kept using him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just over 2,000 games caught. And Pudge, I'm not Pudge. Um, Yadi's going to pass him this season. Wow. Which should be fun. That's really cool. Um. Just a very, very quick before we we go into our next segment here. Uh, who's your favorite catcher? I think mine probably Piazza or you know, no, it's Russell Martin. Mine's Russell Martin. Russell Martin. Oh, you Dodger fan. Yeah. 
Um, also, my it's a good answer, though. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good answer. Uh, my answer is better, though. Oh, the, oh I get it. It's all this. Okay. Um, Josh Gibson. Oh, okay. That's cheating. Definitely Josh Gibson. <laughs> that's, all right. That's fine. cheating. Just yeah. the greatest catcher of all time. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I'll go with the best catcher I've, my, my favorite catcher I've seen. And I'll go with, uh, he didn't last very long behind the plate before he became a DH, but Victor Martinez. Ooh. Oh, yeah. So, that was good. And Cle- Cleveland fan. I, we, I've actually, like, Cleveland, we had. Sandy Alomar in the '90s, Carlos Santana more recently than Victor Martinez. There've been mm-hmm. some good guys back there, but I just I love Vic. And I, I guess non cheat code answer, uh, Joe Mauer. I oh. love Joe Mauer in his know? prime, Bat- batting champion as a catcher, lacing up. Them. Oh, loved it. Now it's been so he was the last catcher to win MVP in 2009. Who do we think? Real quick, uh, who do we think the next best bet is to win MVP? You know, at, at as, the, a catcher? as a catcher. Do we think it's Real Muto? No, he's not good I, enough. My homer pick is going to no. say that Will Smith is just going to go on a tear and hit like no, I don't know, 80 homers. He's just going to get jiggy I, with it. I, I almost uh, just want to say Adley Rutschman. I just okay. only because I don't know that any of the current crop of catchers are actually good enough to do it. And maybe no. he'll be good enough. Like, I don't, like, I, we don't know yet, but, yeah, but like, it would have to be somebody who's better than any catcher right now. Which is tough because Reed Miller is really good, but you just had to deal with like Mookie and Trout and all yeah. these other great players. Yeah, like, and to do that as a catcher and play more than like 120 games yeah. in that position, like, that's I, a tough I ask. See, I don't see just thinking of the new class, like you've got Dalton Varsho, Joey Bart. I don't see them outplaying, yeah, like Mookie Betts or, you know, someone at that level in the next few years. But who knows? All I right. could be wrong. I've been wrong. Yeah, many it, times. it almost would require, it, it requires somebody who was great defensively and their pitching staff would have to be incredible and they'd have to get credit for it. Yeah. Right. Take all of that because they're not offensively going to carry themselves beyond trout or bats or like a Bellinger, like somebody's going to just crush them with the bat just because they get 40 extra games, right? The catchers Mm -hmm. play. So take so many days off. And so it'd have to be a case where, where, where the writers are just like, you know, Using Will Smith as an example, like he raised the game of all of the Dodgers pitchers. The Dodgers wouldn't have been as good as they were as a team without him. And he had a great offensive season and he threw out 90% of base runners and had no pass balls. Like you'd have to have this like crazy sort of set of things. And even then, I think they look at Smith and be like, yeah, he made their pitchers better, but like, how much help did Walker Bueller and Clayton Kershaw and Trevor Bauer really right. need? Exactly. Which is why Adley Rutschman, if he came up and all of a sudden the Orioles pitchers were really good, that might do it. Yeah. Heaps. Yeah. Heaps of praise. We've got, yeah. yeah. That would be cool. So it's a yeah. um, big hill of climb from them catchers. Yeah. Big hill. Big <sighs> hill. Now, moving ahead, Brandon, let's say uh, you want to take us into the pickle jar. Yeah, my favorite segment, the pickle jar. Uh, this is when we ask uh, non-baseball fans what baseball terminology means and get the first reaction and go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this week, I asked my good friend Courtney, what does pulling the string mean? Okay. Pulling the string. Um, so Chad, do you want to give us a definition of pulling the string? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Your best, your best. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, you know throwing, th- throwing that curveball, having to drop out from under the the hitter when they're swinging through it. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Um, so yeah, our non-baseball fan said, is it like taking a player out of a game? Kind of like when those old timey stage came out with a hook 
and got the stage actor off the stage is pulling the string on the player. Yeah. It's not a bad guess. I kind of like that. We should, we yeah. should institute that. Like you're going to pull a guy yeah. mid inning, you, you attach a string to him and pull him all the way back into the Yank dugout. In. Uh huh. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually asked my friend, uh, Vivi about, you know, if, if she could give us me some info on what pulling the string means. Very similar answer, and she said, "When the coach is pulling a pitcher from the game, uh, I think it's you know that's a pretty solid guess, right? You know, it, yeah. it, it makes sense from mm-hmm. an outsider perspective." But yeah, you are exactly right, though. It's it's just when the pitcher throws a pitch considerably slower than what the batter was t- ex- anticipating and just swings right over it. Um, so it looks like the origin, or sorry, we're going actually to the origin of a changeup, yeah. which is the perfect pulling the string pitch, uh, pioneered by Hall of Famer Tim Keefe. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you should know it because he came up recently in 1880 through 1893. <laughs> yeah, it's my hey, favorite era of baseball. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's Sir Timothy Keith. Um, you should know his name. He run he won 342 games, including a season in 1886 where he went something like 40 and 21, 40 and 24, oh which is I love those wild. stats. I mean, you know our. What was Tommy John? One of my favorite uh, parts of spring just uh, started recently. And that is spring training. It's the return of America's pastime. You've got the fields. You've you're hearing gloves popping, um, or you know maybe not this year because we don't have people many people in the stands because of the pandemic. But you know mentally, you know we're all at spring training right now. Um, so we're going to talk about that in our new segment called Baseball's Sweet Spot. Um, now this is a new segment that Brandon and I are debuting this week, uh, where we're just going to talk about the best things about baseball, um, in, you know, relation to like a particular aspect of the sport. So this week's subject, uh, the best things about spring training. So Brandon, do you want to lead us off with some, uh, spring training history? Yeah, I, I would love to go more in depth on spring training in a future episode, especially while we're in spring training, but as a very broad overview, um, the roughest time frame it seems spring training got going was in 1870. Uh, that's when the Cincinnati Reds and the White Stockings, uh, which later became the Cubs, went down to New Orleans for the first couple games of the season. And then the following years, more teams seemed to join. Um, so that's one idea. The other idea is that spring training got going about 16 years later when Cap Anson, of all people, uh, brought his team down to Hot Springs, Alabama. And that year, um, Anson's team took home the pennant. And so they just said, hey, this is a good idea to kind of train before the season. And that's when spring training got going. So it's probably a combination of those two stories. That's the truth there, that they both started roughly at the same time. And then momentum grew. And then teams realized they can make money by people watching the games. And after that, it evolved to what we know today. But my favorite uh, but thing about that, that Anson story is the idea that there was a point in time where people were like, wait a second. What if we got ready? What if instead of yeah. just showing up on opening day, we like practiced and, and took some swings and stuff before the season started? Because it seems stretch, so obvious to us now, bit. right? Like every sport has a preseason and every, yeah. you know, they have their summer camps for the NBA. And like you spend this time getting ready now. It seems so obvious. But yeah, at some point someone had to be like, hey, what if, we, what if we all got together before the game started? What if we? It's like the first guy to think. What if we put a mask on the catcher so he doesn't get, you know, his eye, 
to that. What if we actually, you know, <laughs> tried to subsist off something other than beer and hot dogs? Would we become better baseball uh, players? Whoa, whoa, let's not go too. Let's not go too far yeah, on that one. Yeah, um, so, that's just a theory. You can't prove it, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it works for Mike Trout, right? So, just just going around, um, Chad, what's your favorite thing about spring training? I think my favorite thing about spring training is getting to see the the young guys face off against major league pitching or major league hitting, right? So that guy, the guy who's going to be pitching in double A this year, but got an invite to camp or who's going to be the starting shortstop in triple A, but is getting his first taste of facing major leaguers. And because of the way these games work, right, they all like, especially early on, they play a couple innings and they go to the bench starter comes in for an inning or two, then you get like six relievers in a row. And so you get to see these super fun matchups of like a top prospect against a Clayton Kershaw or a top prospect pitcher pitching to Mike Trout. And you know that it's like neither of them are at full speed, neither like they're all focused on different things, but it's just super cool to see that happen and, and to know that Especially when it's a, when I think when you see a, a young hitter facing off against like an established pitcher, and you know the pitchers out there thinking, "I got to work on my curveball. I'm trying to get myself up to speed. I'm working on my velocity right now." And the hitter is just thinking, "I have a chance to take this guy deep. Yeah. <laughs> I, am, I am ready." Yeah. And it's just it's so I think it's so fun. It's I my think, favorite part of spring. I think that adds cool, almost you know, some cool context too, because everyone kind of comes into spring training a little differently, whether you're a veteran. Oh. Um, you know, a rookie on the bubble trying to make the cut. Uh, and I think that's but all, all, always in the best shape of your life. Always, always. That's every, every year, every year. Um, and I think it really kind of illustrates, you know, just the, the talent gap between the minor leagues to major league baseball. I know I saw um, coming from, I think this weekend, I saw a video of Yankees prospect uh, Jason Dominguez taking batting practice and, let me tell you, it looked really rough. Um, you know, it was just, you know, piping, you know, fastballs, I think down the middle, but it was just, you know, Hey, he's still, he's still working on some things. He's still a minor leaguer. And I think sometimes we take for granted that prospects are going to struggle. Right. And so like the talent gap that you see here is something that always really mm-hmm. interests me. Cause you know, sometimes we expect a player to just immediately come up from the minors and perform. And it really shows that, you know, there's a big gulf between somebody just trying to cut out a career for themselves. Obviously Jason Dominguez is a little more of a prospect than, you know, on the bubble here um, versus somebody who's been at it for, for quite a few years. So for me, one of my favorite things about spring training, it's a little different because I grew up here in Arizona um, so I took for granted that every spring training, I go see a couple games. Um, so it wasn't like as big events. It's just like a regular occurrence. Um, and it, the atmosphere of the games change depending on when in spring training you watch it. The first couple of games, it's just like basically relaxed baseball. Everyone's remembering how to throw the ball, stretching out, making sure no one gets hurt and just, you know, getting the, their cuts in. Whereas if you go see like the last few games of spring training, Everyone's done. They don't want to be there anymore. <laughs> so it's similar, but this is just a different atmosphere, even in the crowds. Uh, so it is that atmosphere of going to the games and getting all the smells of the sunscreen and the beer and the hot dogs, like you were saying. And I've even been to a few games in Florida as well. And even that atmosphere is a little different, too. It's like going to ballparks across, you know, Major League Baseball. They're all going to give you a little different atmospheres. Uh, but just spring training atmosphere is just so nice because... Like we were talking about after the fifth inning, we don't know who that is down there. Yep. We're just here to enjoy baseball. It's it's just a little more 
sincere than otherwise. They're just enjoying the game together. It's it's at its purest form, right? Because you you don't really know. You've got you know number ninety three on the mound and number <laughs> seventy six at first base, and you're like, I have no idea who these guys are, but it's baseball. It's something to watch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I I do want to get start wrapping this up because. We're, we're, we're getting up there. Long. Yeah, yeah. It's the Mark Your Pitcher List podcast bingo card because we are running a little long here. Um, but I did want to touch on, like, I love the best shape of your life storylines that come up every spring <laughs> training because without fail, I fall for at least one of them. This year, my favorite best shape of your life story is definitely Shohei Otani, who I would love nothing more than to see him put together a season where he's just dominant on both sides of the ball because I think, I mean, that would clearly be historic. Do either of you have a favorite best shape of your life kind of story that you've heard from a player or um, something like that? I, I always just like the every once in a while you get the the retroactive opposite where a guy shows up this year and says, yeah, last year I wasn't really ready. I wasn't I wasn't into it. Blah, blah, blah. Like those are my favorite. Like I think we, we forgot one from from Chris Bryant this year where he's just like, I was just in a bad mood last year and I wasn't happy and I didn't want to be playing baseball. That's <laughs> like if you had told us that last year during spring training, that would have been really interesting. And now I don't know. Now it just kind of sounds like an excuse, but you get those every once in a while. Uh, Francisco Lindor yeah. gave one of those this year as well of like, oh, he didn't put everything into it last year. It wasn't all that it could have been. And I always find those entertaining. This like, that's a, that's a great yeah, point. I, I can't hold anything. You know, 2020 was such, you know, absolute mess. Totally. Um, I'm not holding that against any of these players. Cause I know Javi Baez also said, you know, talked about how it was just really hard for him to, to lock in and get going because, you know, we had the, the stop, you know, the initial spring training or we shut things down. Have we thought that maybe it was just the Cubs at this point? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Cubs are going to do what the Cubs do, but you know, obviously Javi Baez, Chris Bryant, very talented ball players. But, uh, I do think it would be funny one year to just have a manager come out and say like flat out, like, yeah, you know, he actually is in the worst shape of his life. Looks pretty terrible. Um, you know, he was really struggling on. We were just doing warm ups or something. Really, <laughs> just just you know, this pitcher running his poles was just really. Heat. Well, you know, it just means we got to work on that stamina. That's the key word. Yeah. Work on the stamina, building up. Just oh, means you have to Just like an ace pitcher, like uh, yeah, Walker Bueller bullpen, absolutely terrible. You know, Dave Roberts coming out there <laughs> looked, looked horrible. Um, yeah, but uh, I'm very excited. The season is right around the corner. Um, and then just one last thing. I also love the little shenanigans that they throw into sh- spring training. Like you had like Will Ferrell do his whole, you know, nine positions in nine spring uh-huh. training games around the league. It's just it's it's a little like you said, it's a little more fun, um, you know, because everyone's just excited for baseball to be back. There's that air of, you know, there's that hope in the air. And it feels like any team can win. Um, except hope for, springs eternal. Yeah, except for the, uh, you know. I think Fangraphs gave the Orioles a zero percent shot, which is kind of tragic. Zero percent, like that's that's just disrespectful, right? <laughs> They're pretty bad, though. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't fair. No. I was just I was just saying, yeah, and, and that's that's sugarcoating it. Yeah. They're pretty bad. They're they're you know, bad. <laughs> I, I'm pulling for for Chris Davis to return to hitting 50 home runs. I don't think it'll happen, uh, but you know, I'm pulling. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Yeah, that'll that will just about wrap us up here on spring training and for the show because you know we are running a little late. Chad, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great time. Um, super happy yeah. to have you come on and share your your incredible misfortune about the the perfect game tickets. I still can't believe that. Oh happened. man! The, the last little tidbit about that, just to to close out the show on the perfect note, is the guy who I shared those tickets with, the season tickets with that we gave those away. 
he has also given away tickets to another perfect game. No. Yeah, no. he's got the third. It was years ago. It wasn't it wasn't together. It was uh I don't even remember who it was or I don't know all the background on it, but after we gave away the second one, he was like, This is the third time this has happened. <laughs> and I was just wow. like at night. That would, that would is he still giving away tickets and can I get them? Yeah, anytime if he's giving away tickets, I'll let everybody know because uh-huh. right. your best shot. I would be so paranoid about <laughs> skipping a game if I had given away tickets to three perfect games. Oh, poor guy. We didn't miss many of the future years, but yeah. nobody threw a perfect game again. <laughs> yeah. So you can also find Chad on Twitter at Chad Young. And don't forget, please check out the Keep or Cut podcast on the PL Podcast Network and on Twitter at Keep or Cut. That's a cut with a K. Chad, uh, do you just want to give people a quick rundown about what that podcast is about? Yeah, it's uh, myself and, and Pete Ball is my co-host, and we are focused on Keeper League. So we talked at the beginning about Auto New. That's a big part of what we talk about. But any any Keeper League, any format where you're keeping guys year over year, where it's not just a sort of single year redraft, um, there's a lot of content out there, I think, for redrafts and focused on this year. And we're trying to bring a little bit of a different angle and talk about things like who are the guys you can draft because they're going to hold you over for the next three or four years and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've seen some of your tier lists on on Twitter, some of the graphics. So be sure to check that out. I know I will be because, um, well, you know, picture list is full of great fantasy advice and I am probably the most in need of it. (laughs) But for sure, uh, don't forget also to follow Short Hops and Tall Tales on Twitter at Short Hops PL and to keep listening here um, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're currently listening, I guess, you know, We'll be there. Yeah, we'll we'll be there. So for Branton Riddle, I'm Noah Scott, and this has been the Short Hops and Tall Tales podcast. See you next time. <laughs>